Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. Simon. Skyler. How hey, you Simon. Doing? Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hey there. Simon. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. This is Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts, and folk and fairy tales from our elders. And I am your host, Simon Brooks, a meeting with professional storytellers. On this episode, unfortunately, there is a popping sound that came over on the recording and I couldn't get rid of it always. So I apologize for the tech side of things. This episode features Fran Stallins, biologist, dancer, storyteller. Fran started telling stories as she taught and then later started telling to her kids and earned money to become a professional towards the beginning of the Renaissance in the early 80s. And she's still at it. Fran is such a wonderful, warm person and a great teller of traditional tales. Here she shares her journey and connection to Japanese stories and Hiroko Fujita. Fran shares her work process and why folk and fairy tales are important to her. Please welcome Fran Stallins. Fran Stallins, thank you so much indeed for joining me here today on the interwebs. <laughs> Very happy to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we were able to make this. We've been talking about this for a while and um, now it's happening, which is wonderful. So I was reading about you and you've you've done quite a lot actually and i don't think people know generally speaking how much you've actually done i've been with this for a while and so i've yeah. had a chance to do different things right but i mean looking at your you started off in in you're a queen's girl right <laughs> yeah i grew up in far rockaway which will be flooded at some point in the near future yeah, probably, right? But I love the name Far Rockaway. It's just it's just an excellent place for a storyteller to begin their life, I think. And then you uh you headed out to Ohio where you got your Midwestern accent. And now you're in Oklahoma, right? Yeah, that's more or less. I was let's see. Details. Born in Harlem, then oh. uh while my dad was overseas in the Philippines, we stayed with my mother's family in Ohio. That's where I learned to talk. And then moved back to New York when dad returned. And, and I grew up in Far Rockaway. Uh, went to college in Massachusetts. Went to uh, graduate school in Wisconsin. Got married and moved to Cleveland. Then we lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan for a while, and then we moved to Oklahoma. So it's a long way around to Oklahoma. It was a long way around. And you yeah. you, you were attracted at, at, to college because there was a dance program, is that right? Oh, well, that was one of the things I was looking for, dance and botany. And- uh, That's an interesting I combination. <laughs> well, well, dance had been very meaningful to me in high school, and um, I ended up freshman year taking so many lab courses that I didn't work out often enough, and when I tried out for the dance group, I tore the hamstring off my hip, and that kind of put the end to my dance career. <laughs> Ouch, yeah. Yeah. But wow, that would do that. You bet. Um, oh, yeah, hip. That sound. That sounds so painful. It kind of slowed me down, but going across campus on crutches, I noticed a lot of cute little things growing that I might not have seen if I had been striding purposefully along. So that was okay. A little hard on the shoulders. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, I I did major in botany, though they they fused with the zoo department and it became biological sciences. That's what it says. And went to the University of Wisconsin and uh, got a doctorate, actually. But I, I got into cell physiology and DNA and that kind of stuff. DNA? Yeah. Wow. So what, what drew you to that? Well, I wanted to know how all this worked, you know? Ah. 
all these wonderful shapes and, and colors and control of things. I wanted to know how the DNA got through to the cell and controlled it. So I had a, a, a fun time doing research, but I was a couple decades ahead of time in, in what I would have needed technologically in order to answer the questions I was asking. Right, right. So let's see, after that, then uh, Gordon and I got married at grandmother's house in Ohio. And then we, we moved to Cleveland and I taught at Kent State University for a while. I taught uh, introductory biology and botany and local flora and things like that. And then after a while, we moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I did a postdoc there. Wow. Um, but by the time we moved to Oklahoma, we had a toddler and a baby on the way, and there were no university uh, opportunities nearby. So uh, I raised the kids and started storytelling. I had been using stories when I was teaching at, at right. Kent State and as a postdoc. And uh, it was a family tradition. If you have something to explain, you use a story with it. Right. I read, I read that on your Wikipedia page that you would read to your younger siblings because your mother was frightened oh, that the television oh. would drop their brains. <laughs> That's right. Well, I'm the oldest of five. First, there were three of oh. us, and mom and dad told us lots of stories and read a lot to us. But right. when I was in middle school, the two youngest came along. And by then, there was brain rot on television, and mom was concerned that uh, their brains would turn to mush. So it was my job to work with them and uh, uh, keep them keep their imaginations going, which I think it must have. And uh, I, I did a lot of babysitting in high school. And you can, as I say you can only sit on one baby at a time so <laughs> to keep the other one occupied i told him stories just his mother had told me stories while she was busy with my brother and then had told both of us stories while she was busy with baby sister that's what you do right right and yeah so what kind of stories would she sorry go on go ahead what kind of stories did she tell then did she what? tell yeah. Or, uh, a lot of it I was, well, when I was very young, they were, you know, the three billy goats and, and uh, that, that kind of story. And when we were wrestling in the backseat of the car trying to kill each other, she would make up stories for us oh, no way. and retell stories from movies and picture books and so forth. So I just figured that's what people do. You, yeah. Find a story you like and you just tell it in your own words. Why not? So that's what I did with my little brothers, but I also because they were very active. Um, we acted out the stories. We did a lot of mime and pantomime and pretend and things like that. That's, and that's really cool. So, so I'm sorry. No, it's all right. <laughs> so good. I was gonna ask you, you 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 started from what I read, that you started storytelling in 1978 with your in, in the school that your children were in, right? Right, right. I didn't get paid until '82, and that's <laughs> when that's when one of my younger brothers came to visit. He was in grad school and was putting himself through a master's in library science by working as a professional storyteller. Um. And I didn't know you could get paid for it. And uh, he said, yeah, friend, you taught me everything I know. Well, um, so then I began began to work in venues other than the kids' schools, telling right. stories and getting paid. So I don't really count professional until I got paid. Right, right. No, I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. That's, so, so your brother put himself through... So he was telling stories before 78 then? Or he was telling stories before 78? Before 82. I'd, I'd have to check with him for the exact timeline. Okay. But, but uh, he told stories with uh, a group called Story Painters. Okay. And uh, he was on public television in West Virginia with Michael Parent on a oh, story no show. 
and he made up a lot of songs. He's very, very creative. He still still does a lot of writing and things like that. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should interview him on the show. Yeah, yeah. He's very, he, he has that ability to uh, take three items suggested by the audience and think for a beat or two and come up with a perfectly crafted short story. Wow. Um, yeah. That, that's fun. I like that. Yes, it is. I'm always impressed. So you, you started telling stories in the schools and, and things kind of took off and you started to get paid in 1982. Was, was it just mostly local places that you were doing it at that particular point or? Right. In the 80s, most of the most of the work was with the State Arts Council. They had really good funding in the 80s. And I worked as an um, artist in residence at schools for two or three weeks at a time, joining the faculty, oh, wow. um, doing big assemblies and individual classroom visits and training uh, selected classes in storytelling skills. And uh, the teachers would ask for uh, stories from Switzerland or stories about um, palm trees or, you know, whatever they were studying. And that's a terrific way to build your repertory. Yes, it is. Yes. And that that's was before a, yeah. the internet. So <laughs> right. a lot of, lot of books of stories. I know it's just, it always saddens me when we, when we go to a library and they have the shelf of like books for sale and I see some of the folktale books up there. I mean, it's a good win for old, you know. Well, I know, but it's, I don't know, it makes me sad. Folktales are old, that's the point. Right, right, when I was a, when I was a children's librarian, untrained and feral, but um, the, the folktale books wouldn't go out, so I, and so I would just stamp them to make it look as if they did so they wouldn't get weeded out. <laughs> yeah, I used to sometimes take home an armload of books and then take them back, you know, if, if only I couldn't read read all of them, but uh, at least they got some fresh air and maybe they would be be uh, kept for a little while longer. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's, that's important. So how do, you ended up going to Japan. Mm-hmm. When well, was that? The very first time actually was in... 1975, we were living in Ann Arbor then. Uh, my husband designed uh, some industrial electronic gear for a company in Japan. For He was working for a company that did that kind of thing. And we knew he was going to be over there for as long as six months to oh, wow. start it up. And uh, in Nagoya, which was not a tourist town, in 1975, well, we were afraid they wouldn't speak English there. So um, I connected with a grad school family of uh, expats, Japanese family. Mm -hmm. I got uh, recordings and books to learn Japanese so that I'd be able to survive. Our, our first child was 21 months old by the time we went over there. And... Uh, so I, I was only there about a month and a half, actually. But I got around just fine being able to speak enough Japanese to connect with other mothers and find my way to the zoo and, and uh, buy diapers and things like that. Um, That's incredible to learn, to learn a language, you know, just to get by mm -hmm. for a month. That's not many people would go to that level of... of um, assimilation if you will to, to be able to try and fit in at least well, to some degree i figured we'd be stuck in the hotel if i couldn't talk with people because <laughs> uh, you know i knew that i knew that um people were students were being required to study some english in high school but uh hey how's your algebra you know just because you yeah. studied it some years ago doesn't mean you've used it or or can easily access it so uh, i figured i'd better better get fluent enough to get around anyway and right. uh, learning it orally was a wonderful experience uh it was kind of like learning music oh. as opposed to the way that i had been 
uh, I had had French hammered into me on paper in high school and never could speak it, and a little Russian and German later on, but never could speak them. And when you learn a language orally, uh, you learn to hear it and you learn to speak it. And Japanese people enunciate very clearly, so it was easier than I had feared to understand what they were saying. And they were always so amazed that I could say anything at all. <laughs> so, you, you, what, what, how old were you when you learned your first non-English language? Non-English. Well, that that would have been in high school. Okay. French, right. but uh, yeah, I was in my thirties when I learned Japanese the first time. So that was in 1975. But then, in '93, the youngest of my brothers was working in Japan. He had a university position and invited us to come visit and asked what we would like to see. And, uh, okay, historical sites and buildings are wonderful, but I wanted to see Japanese storytelling because by that time I had been working uh, a great deal in storytelling and I had published an article in 88 with the National Storytelling Magazine mm -hmm. about the uh, trance-like state that people sometimes fall into when they're listening. And I was convinced that it wasn't just the words, it was the way the story was told. And I was very interested in nonverbal communication. So I was interested in how Japanese storytellers would handle stories. And fortunately, my brother's office mate's wife knew Hiroko Fujita, who was a, a skilled traditional storyteller. She told stories she had learned in her childhood growing up in the mountains in Fukushima Prefecture. And uh, they took us to hear her. We got to meet her. And and believe me, there, I, I at this point, it had been years since I had been fluent at all in Japanese, mm -hmm. you know, almost going on 20 years. And so I caught just a few words enough to know which story it was because I'd been reading some Japanese stories. And yet I had no difficulty following the story because of her vo vocal tone, her facial expressions, her gestures. And I thought, bingo, this, this is the proof that you don't need the words. The story can communicate. And I earnestly begged her to consider coming to the States to tell stories, to show this. And she had never been out of the country at that point. And she was, oh gosh, in her 60s by then, I guess. And uh, it took a while to convince her, but in 93, she came for the first time. And we developed a method where I would give a synopsis of the story in English and foreshadow some of the gestures and words that you might hear, but I didn't tell the ending of the story. And lo and behold, American audiences from senior citizens all the way down to preschoolers could follow her stories perfectly. They laughed at the right places. They said, I didn't understand a word, but I understood the story. And That's amazing. It was wonderful. It was so wonderful. the audiences had a brief synopsis of the story and some of the gestures that uh -huh. Hiroko was going to use. Yes. But they knew when to laugh. I had been to the opera. I had read the, you know, the, the analysis, the, the uh, synopsis of the story. And right. then you watch the actors on stage. And, That's you know, true. even if they're singing in English, you can't understand the words because they're... <laughs> going all over the place with the melody. But you could, you could follow what was happening. You knew what to expect. Yeah. And, and they were telling the story with their bodies and their voices beyond what would go onto a printed page. And I thought it was a very fat, powerful. I mean, so we used the opera as the model for what we right. did. Okay. And uh, she ended up coming for 20 years, almost every spring. We traveled around to 22 different states. Uh, we always went to Stillwater, Oklahoma, because there were friends there with OSU 
uh, we loved, loved her work and always made us bookings in schools and libraries and other places. And by the time we were coming back at the end of those 20 years, um, when we did public performances, there were young adults bringing their children. Oh, I bet, yes. To see the stories that they had enjoyed when they were in school. And that's that amazing, was that's phenomenal. I was, I was out walking uh, my dog, who you can probably hear snoring in the background, I don't know. Um, but Mo and I were out on, on a walk in the woods and I bumped into these people who also walk in their dogs and the dogs are running around. So we're just like shooting the breeze, chit chatting and stuff. And this woman was telling me about the storyteller that she remembered seeing in school when she was in elementary school. And, you know, just like pulling questions out, um, asking if she remembered any of the stories, like, you know, if because if, I couldn't remember the name. And then she said, he told a story about strawberries. And I was like, was it J.O. Callahan? And she was just, yes. And this woman was probably in her 40s. Uh -huh. And she remembers seeing him when she was when she was a kid in elementary school. And it's it people don't realize how powerful these stories can be, right? Really, and, really stick. Yeah, they do stick with you. I've had uh, young adults come up to me here in town and say, I remember you, you used to, when I was in second grade, you used to come tell me stories. Tell because, me stories. Yes, yes, because they had that feeling that the story was just for them. And uh, that that's always exciting and wonderful. Yes, it is. Even if it makes us feel a little off. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> yes, Sonny, I remember going to basketball. <laughs> oh, dear. So how long were these how long did these tours last that you that you did with Hiroko Fujita? Well, uh they were generally at least three weeks. I think we did one that was close to six weeks. Where, oh, wow. where we you know, when we started in Houston in South Texas and uh, ended up in Wisconsin in the north and followed the springtime north. That was lovely. Uh, Washington, D.C., we got to see the cherry trees, which she was missing at home. Uh, the West Coast, uh, we were in San Francisco and other, other places. So as I said, about 22 different states that we got to. That's and so and you, then, also, you also wrote some books with her, right? Right. Well, let me let me back up just a bit here. Um, she doesn't drive and she doesn't do maps. So I, I did all the local local driving and it was her job to keep me awake. So okay. she told me stories, uh, some of which we still won't tell to young audiences. Um, she she told me stories while we drove and she told them the way the way she heard the stories as a child was not as a stand-up performance. They would see a cloud and the old farmer who told her most of the stories would tell a story about a, a, traveling into the clouds and what you would see up there. Um, an animal, a bird, a flower, and he knew stories about those. So when we were traveling, mm -hmm. she told me stories that came to mind because of what we saw. I took her to see General Sherman, the big redwood tree. In, when we were in California, and she told me an eerie, beautiful, sad Japanese story about a girl who fell in love with a a suji, a Japanese cedar, a great, great tree, and what the consequences were of that that liaison. Um, and most of these were stories that I had not found in English anywhere when I went looking. Uh, I found references to them in some of the folklore indexes from Japan. Right. Um, but people asked for copies of the, they wanted the stories, and especially they wanted some of the little games and toys and things that she did uh, toys made out of recycled material, juice boxes and egg cartons and stuff that she used with kids when she was in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, the, the first time she came to Japan, she, she came from Japan to Texas at the 
Texas Festival, she saw a handbook for telling stories to young children in English, of course. And she said, oh, we have nothing like this. So she went home and wrote one. And the next time <laughs> she came back, she brought it. Of course, it was in Japanese and it was illustrated with all. And teachers saw it and they said, we we want that, but we can't read it. So I you know, translated it. And that was our first book called uh, Stories to Play With. Oh. It came out from um, August House. Okay, right, right. And uh, many, many people are still using that. I think it, it came out in 1999. And okay. many people are still using that. And then there were all these other stories that I had translations in my computer. And there they were. And I said, you know, I feel like a dog in the manger. I have all these that, that I'm keeping. And she said, what is manger dog? So I explained about the dog sleeping on the straw where the other animals couldn't get at it. And she said, feed those animals. So wow. I arranged, uh, we, we published a collection of her stories with um, ABC Clio, Libraries mm -hmm. Unlimited, which had a series of collections of folktales from different parts of the world. And in order to put that together, I had to use the indexes to make sure this, these were stories that were known throughout Japan so they would be representative because so many of them, as far as I know, are unique to Fukushima. Oh, wow. Um, including one of her most famous ones, uh, the, the burglar who had to be a babysitter. Uh, um, that sounds interesting. <laughs> and I've never, ever found any reference to it in the indexes. And she suspects that the old farmer made it up for her oh. when her baby sister was born. She was about eight or nine years old. And this is a story that includes like nai 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 ba, which is peekaboo right. in Japanese, and all kinds of baby games that you can play to quiet a crying baby because the burglar had to keep the baby quiet so he'd have time to steal something. <laughs> Oh, that and sounds like a fun story. It's it's terrific. We have a video of her telling it in Japanese, but um, uh, because the, the video was linked to the book, okay, uh, people who got the book could get the private YouTube link. But uh, so we published folk tales from the Japanese countryside, and then I still had more stories. And Ted Parkhurst was interested in publishing those, and so we published a hundred more. Um, most of most of whom had never been seen in English. You know, there's some like, you know, uh, get up and bar the door. Yes, I do. That, that kind of well, there's a Japanese variant of that, so that's that's one of them. And there there are a couple others where you've seen uh, the you've seen a parallel story in English okay. somewhere, but most of them were plots that I had never never found elsewhere when I searched our folktale indexes. So uh, she gave her blessing to people, please tell these. Really? So if someone was to go out and buy one of those books, that that's that's wonderful. Because I know that there are some story collections where there are some people that are, no, don't tell these stories. <laughs> I collected them, which to me seems a bit well, different. You know. <laughs> I, I think they feel this is our stories and you may enjoy them and you may pay us to come tell them to you and you may buy our book, but that doesn't mean you can walk off with it. Right. Right. But it's not necessarily, well, I'm not going to get into this, but yeah, it's no. my, my feeling is, is that it's not, it wasn't their story in the first place. They got it from somebody else. Right. Oh. And Anyway, her idea was, please take it and run off with it. And in fact, our Stillwater friend, Monty Harper, who is a children's folk singer, made up a song about a burglar babysitter, but he's in the States. And instead of stealing rice, he smells bread baking and he wants to steal some of the bread and he has to keep the baby quiet with American baby toys, baby games. So he's got a lovely song, and that that's linked on the website also. Oh wow, that's it. It sounds 
yeah, that sounds it sounds really cool. I might have to get a copy so I can get the link to the website. <laughs> I'll definitely have to do that. Tell tell me about the another book that was written because the, the title of this really appeals to me. The price of three stories. What's mm -hmm. the, the name of that book? It, it, it there's something ominous about it, but there well, probably isn't at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a traditional. Japanese of the two that we did with Ted Parkhurst. One is called How to Fool a Cat, and that's stories that kids can enjoy. But The Price of Three Stories is uh, more for adults and teens and things. Um, and the title story is about um, a man who had gone to work, and he worked uh, for a long time and Ernst finally got paid at the end of the time, and he was finally going to go home with his earnings back, back home. But he saw a shop that uh, was offering stories for sale. And so he went and bought one, but instead of a story, it turned out to be more like a proverb of the sort of, oh goodness, I haven't told this story for so long, I forget the details, but it was, uh, one of them was um, don't stay in a hotel, in a big fancy hotel, stay in a small one. Or, or uh, and he said, well, that's, you know, that's not a story. I can't take that home and, and tell it. So he paid for another one and then for a third one. And each time it was just a proverb or a piece of advice. And he, he had spent almost all of his money, but finally on the way home, it was getting rainy and he needed a place to stay. And instead of staying at the big place, he turned around and stayed at the little one. And the big one was hit by a big wind and, and collapsed. And, you know, things like that. So yeah. it turned out that the advice was very prescient in his case. And so he was to tell at the end of his journey, right? <laughs> he, he had that story to tell, that's for sure. <laughs> so, um, how, how do you, so you had all these stories that you, you know, that the dog was sitting on. <laughs> yes. Um, how did you pick the ones that you, you did choose to publish? Well, the trick as with, when, when we were selecting stories for our performances, it had to be a story where the plot line was simple enough that people could hold it based on a short synopsis mm -hmm. and and follow clearly enough and genuinely Japanese, but not requiring a whole lot of explanation of the cultural background. Because many, many of the stories that are still in my computer mm -hmm. depend pretty heavily for explanation of why a particular thing is done in a certain way. In fact, uh, when she was an adult and realized she knew all these stories and they were coming back to her memory, she took uh, classes at Tokyo Women's University in social history mm -hmm. to discover that, yes, indeed, people used to do things this way. Oh, wow. Well, there's, there's one lovely story that I, I do often tell um, about some... Uh, Farmers who, after several years of, of bad crops, finally raised enough rice to pay their land tax because rice was the uh, money that was used. Yeah, currency, right. Yeah, you know, currency. And the head farmer was so pleased that they could at last do this that he invited all the farmers to a feast at his place. Mm -hmm. And they were horrified because they were used to just sitting around a common pot and scooping with a spoon or something. And they knew that at a proper feast, there would be special manners and they didn't know the manners. But the, the head of the farmers had been to proper feasts and he told them the mayor was having the feast and the head farmer knew the, knew the manners and he tried to tell them, uh, First, you pick up your chopsticks with one hand to the other hand, then pick them up properly, then a sip of this and a bite of that. And they couldn't remember the sequence. It was so long 
and, and tricky. So he said, that's all right. We'll be sitting in the line. You just watch me and do everything I do. Well, that worked all right. He'd do it down the line, do another thing down the line, until finally he had finished the prescribed order and he reached for his favorite food, which was like a candied uh, sweet potato. And he almost had it to his lips when it dropped and hit the floor and rolled away. So the next farmer picked up a piece of sweet potato and dropped it. Oh. And so on down the line. And he tried to stop them by waving his hands. So they waved their hands on down the line. And he was so mortified that he leaped up and ran ran out of the room, stepping on the tail of his fundoshi, which was a wrapped loincloth. Okay. So his underwear unwrapped and fell on the floor as he ran from the room. And so the others did that too. <laughs> And that was the end of the feast. Well, we, <laughs> I have to I have to figure a place in the story to explain what is fundoshi and why it was wrapped that way to explain to non-Japanese people right. that it was liable to come untucked and, and loose and so forth. Well, we, we do this story, I often get volunteers to come up. Oh, yes, they want to be in the feast. They don't know that they're going to be losing their underwear and running off stage. <laughs> so we often get the principal or some other person. Nice, I like that. <laughs> but, but the thing is that after she had told that story in Japan one time, she got a call from the mother of one of the students who had come home insisting on eating his meal in that procedure. And she said, where did you learn this? And Fujita-san said, well, story I learned when I was a child. And the woman said, my, my field is the history of the emperor's court. And those are the prescribed manners of 500 years ago. Wow. And the story had preserved them like a fly in amber. Wow. Was wonderful. Yes, it is. Oh, I love stuff like that. When when these little stories give us these little tidbits of of you know life and and how things used to be done. Yeah. yeah, but as I say, I had to figure a way to slip into the narrative of the story, the background information, because I didn't want to start each story with a kind of a lecture. Right. Um, why they were sitting on the floor around the hearth. Why wasn't the hearth in a fireplace against the wall? Well, that's not, you know, the Irori hearth was in the middle of the floor. And and we she often brought pictures of some of these things so that people could understand them. And we have illustrations in the book. But that's a trick when you are translating stories from another culture to insert the essential cultural information without warping the story out of shape or without right. giving a very boring lecture. <laughs> and uh, so that, that's been an interesting challenge. Oh, I bet. So have you, have you translated any other books other than Japanese ones? Just... <laughs> I'm not fluent enough in anything else to translate it. No, indeed. So um, how do, when you go to decide a story that you're going to tell, and this is not not just the Japanese stories, but any story. How how do you how do you find a story that you want to tell? What what's the process that you go through? Well, I listen to a whole lot of them, and I read and read and read a whole lot of them. And if the book belongs to me, I put notes in the index pages uh, about the ones that really appeal to me for some reason or other. Um, and if it's a library book, I photocopy the index page and annotate that. So I'll have that for future reference and uh, make a note of whether it's a story that I can use in my environmental storytelling, uh, either the, the content or the idea that it promotes about, you know, unanticipated consequences and watch out for what you may not know. 
things like that. Um, and I, I keep those notes. And then when I want to work on a story, I'll go back to my lists and see what grabs me. And, uh, and of course, sometimes just because we do this, sometimes I have to find a story that's about volcanoes and leprechauns, but, but, um, those don't usually make the cut afterward. I can maybe yeah. pump some life into it long enough to tell it where I have to, but uh, hmm, not, not yeah. Good with me. That's, yeah, it's, I find the summer reading program, um, it, it's good fun to learn a whole bunch of stories. And you find the ones that didn't really fill your soul, they kind yeah. of fall away. Yeah. And, and just vanish and it's like oh why don't why don't I tell that story anymore and then you go back to it and it's like oh that's why <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I look at the playlist for some things I did many years ago and I don't even recognize the titles uh, oh, anymore. Wow, yeah. you know I just haven't done them again but I I will point out sometimes I hear someone tell a story and think oh my golly that I read that ages ago and I just didn't get it. it. It just didn't, it didn't appeal to me at all. But now I see what that could be about. And so yeah. sometimes I talk with the teller and find out if it's, a, you know, a wholly original take on the story, in which case that's their property. Right. Um, but, but other times I realize, duh, it just didn't get through to me at the time. A an example. A story I've loved since I was a little kid. Mom used to read it to me. Um, the story of, it's called The Twelve Months or The Month yep. Brothers from Czechoslovakia or thereabouts. Um, and maybe you're familiar with it. I am, um, yeah. Sort of Cinderella-ish uh, step, stepdaughter being forced to go out in the snow in the middle of winter and bring back violets and strawberries and apples. Three different right. kinds. And told... If you don't find them, we won't open the door. You'll just freeze in the snow. And she found the circle of 12 stones where the 12 months were sitting and begged just to warm her fire over the low coals at that time. And when they asked what earth she was doing out there, she told them her stepsister's demands. And they waved their staff over the fire and brought it up and got violets or strawberries or apples for her. And when she brought back just two, two apples were all she'd been allowed to take. And they accused her of having eaten the others herself. And they decided the stepmother and stepsister to go out into the snow and get the rest of them. And they found their way to the fire and were very, very rude. And so the fire went lower, lower, lower came back well i found that story had appealed to me but i never had told it and then i heard uh diane uh, Epstein? no 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 um diane cox in uh, oh, okay. omaha she okay. told it and at the end of the story with the happy ending she said and she never craved fruit out of season. Wow. And I realized, boing, that's, you know, that is an environmental message. We have all yeah. this fruit that is airshipped to us from South America and Mexico. And I've used it now with kids, and we discuss what season are strawberries really ripe in. Right. When do apples really come? And with Diane's permission, I've used that book at the end of it. Um, That's good. Yeah, that is a good end. I like that. That's really cool. Yeah. Because it is, right? I mean, we do. We eat this food all day, all year round, right? Yeah. And yeah. how, you know, we, our last house, we had four acres of land. And we, we, we let a local farmer use two of the acres um because we weren't using it for anything and if he wanted to use it why not right and we would we had these huge gardens where we would grow a lot of our own food and when we moved mm. here to new london and we got like a third of an acre <laughs> and the soil was really bad oh. right it was 
yeah, it was it was a big change to mm-hmm. you know not walk out in June and stick the knife an inch under the ground and pull out a piece of asparagus and eat it and it already tastes like it's been cooked in butter, right? Oh, yes. So like you know, getting it from the supermarket and being like, there's not much flavor to this. It's you know, it, it, it's 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 days it's old. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we. Well, yeah. Maybe you have a farmers market or a CSA. We do. We do. We, 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 that's we haven't. We we did it on and off when we first moved here and then got out of it. Um, sure. but this year we're actually getting a CSA and we're going to you know Good. support our local support our local. Yes. Farmers. So. Yeah. I helped to start a farmer's market here in town and wrote a song. One of the verses was, green peaches and tomatoes are picked as hard as rocks. They travel far without a bruise and taste like dirty socks. But the <laughs> local farmers wait and pick them ripe on tree and vine. Packed with care, perfume the air, they're tasting mighty fine. When your food lives where you do, it travels fewer miles so buy fresh by local get a farmer's market smile yeah i like that that's good yeah. well <laughs> so you dance and you sing <laughs> well don't dance, but yeah i have that song is on a, a collection a cd of uh, stories and songs for a green earth that i did okay because because I, I loved working with Hiroko Fujita, and that is an opportunity that came along, and I just couldn't turn away from it. And right. she invited me to go to Japan, and her followers wanted to hear the stories that I had told to her when we were traveling. And so I've got, let me see, three books and several CDs that were published in Japan for my oh. over there. But um i began to feel that i wanted to make more of an impact and lynn maroney who had been working as star teller sky teller sky teller uh telling stories in a planetarium she was the um probably the world expert on uh indigenous sky lore uh, mostly native american she she was uh, chickasaw mostly native american but other cultures as well that she studied and she convinced me that we should work together as uh, earth and sky storytellers and we did programs in schools where she did the sky lore and the weather stories and i did the plants animals and geography stories and lynn has uh, retired now but i'm still earth teller and i really felt with climate change coming along that I ought to get even further into that kind of thing. So Linda Yamoto and I uh, co-chaired two EarthUp conferences for uh, the National Storytelling Network. Uh, these were virtual and worldwide conferences of performances and stories and workshops. And I'm coaching environmental storytellers from all over the world using zoom and uh really working to try to get people beyond telling nice nature stories which are good mm-hmm. I, I say aware care dare you need oh, to be aware of what's out there and the things with which we share the world before you can care about them and you need to care about them before you can dare to take any kind of action, whether it's just avoiding plastic single-use items yeah. or, or uh, recycling cardboard or um, demonstrating in front of the oil company or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so that's that's kind of the direction that I'm trying to, to go with my stories. And I'm also doing more um, you know, platform storytelling at festivals. And that's fun. Do you like that? Mm, it's it's fun. Well, okay. Um, one of one of your questions. Let me see. What's your favorite part of the job? What lights you up? That's one of the questions you had written in advance. Yes. Yeah. And I have to quote Mark Twain, who said, "I love to hear a good story well told 
even if I have to do it myself. <laughs> and, and it's fun. It's fun to stand there with the mic and put out a story to several hundred colleagues and or people who've never heard storytelling before and right. see that story hit hit its target and light them up and breathe together with the people who are listening and it's just a very great joy and i feel that as long as i can do that i i want to continue sharing the stories good i'm glad to hear that and you you're also a bit of i'm not sure if activist is quite the right word but you've done you've done some pretty cool things in your life right you you helped with a woman's shelter yeah right yeah and then there was what, what was it called i can't remember hang on let me have a quick peek the equal rights amendment you worked with that as well right oh yes that was when we still thought there was a chance of ratifying it here <laughs> but, um, and then here locally we have uh, had a number of celebrations of suffrage that included um, a reenactment of the time that Susan B. Anthony was brought up in federal court for the federal crime of voting while female. And we've had a reenactment of that. A local, uh, a local judge, uh, Jan, Jan Dryling, um, wrote up this play and she's the only female in the cast and all the, the uh, jurors, of course, are gents that we recruit in the kingdom but then we have to have a lot of people demonstrating outside and and i'm the mc and i do some of the some of the characters and we have sojourner truth we have a lot of other famous feminists who tried to get tried to get the uh, vote cast, and so we have a demonstration for all of that did, did did susan b anthony ever meet emily parkhurst I don't know. Emily Parker's was in England. Did she ever come no. to the States? I well, that's what I'm wondering. That would be I an interesting that story. To, that, that would, okay. There you go. Maybe we need to look that one up. <laughs> yeah. Good idea. So how how do you craft your work? When you've decided on your on your story that you're going to tell, what's the what's the next stage? Well, once I've got an idea of the basic outline of what happens and who's involved and where, then I walk around with it. I, I often go for long walks in the neighborhood or, you know, while I'm bumbling around the house or working in the garden and just uh, elaborate and think of what the conversations might be and how I might describe the scenes until I have a whole lot of stuff. And then I try pruning that back down to what really is necessary to the story because excessive stuff doesn't really help, thank you. And um, I practice telling the story to myself as I'm walking. I don't record and listen back, hate to hear my voice. Um, but I do practice and then, uh, if it's for a performance where there's a time limit, I, I do use the, the timer on my phone and make sure if I've got to do any more trimming or if I've got space to elaborate a little more. And once the story seems pretty smooth, then if, especially if it's an original piece, a completely original piece, uh, then I uh, write down at least the outline of the story, because after having developed all that good stuff, I don't want to forget it. Right. And you know, you have to tell a story many times before it really, really sticks. So I've got, uh, for instance, um, Little Green Riding Hood, which is a, a story where the, the uh, villain is the woodsman who wants to clear cut the forest and the... Oh. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> Little Green and her grandma, who is a tree sitter up in the top of a big tall tree. Oh, to nice. it. Like that. Uh, they are actually rescued by the two timber wolves that uh, Granny had had raised when they were orphaned. So the wolves are the. the I like that. What a nice twist! 
And I do, uh, oh, Three Billy Goats Gruff, where the troll is a park ranger who doesn't want them to despoil the park the way they have their original hill. And so she shoots them with a um, dart gun, an anesthetic dart, and takes them back to the, into the park where they have been threatening to use herbicide to kill the, the growth under the power lines. Uh. And instead, they pen up the goats in an electric fence and let the goats do it. So the three billy goats live happily. In slavery. <laughs> well, with all they can eat, you know, all the poison right. and blackberries and stuff. I know. They to. don't stop at anything, do they? It's like chickens. That I think the only thing that chickens don't, no, the only thing that goats don't eat is poison ivy. But oh, chickens, no, they, they eat poison ivy at least here. They do? Oh, they okay. Do. Well, maybe it's the chickens that don't eat poison ivy, but they eat everything else. Yeah. It was one of the two. I know it's one of the two. And I have an original story that I think is going to go in the Parkhurst collection for the um, anniversary of the Texas Festival. I'll be featured at the Texas Festival next year, and the book will be out in time. But oh, it's awesome. a story... Uh, based on the uh, murders of the Osage Indians in the 1920s. Mm. This was the same thing that David Grant wrote about in the book Killers of the Flower Moon, but I composed the story long before he wrote that book. And and uh, the movie, based on his book, is going right. to come out in October, I think. But my, my story is... Um, you got to get that ready. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well... It's fiction, and uh, it's about a, a smart smart guy who came to town to marry an Osage woman one after another, knock them off, and get the oh. headlights. Wow. But, um, yeah. So how many, how many original stories do you, do you have in your repertoire, approximately? I haven't counted. Do you have a lot I'm, of them? Uh, that's not my specialty, really. But... Um, if you count family, I, I have a few family and personal experience stories and, right. and that would be, I don't know, at least a dozen, but okay. that, that's not my intention because I got into this because I love the old folk tales. Right. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. And, and I, I want to keep them going. And so I try to, when I'm featured at the Texas festival next year, the other featured tellers are Donald Davis and um, a gentleman who tells personal experience stories from his his background and um, a woman who, well, I've never heard her. I'm not really sure what her kind of stories are. And so um, it, it may be up to me to wave the flag go friend you know but I'm, i may do some of my twisted ones because those are fun. yeah right you're right they want you and that's what you do right so that's what you you bring you bring it all right you know just bring a part of it yeah well you know when people say well well what do you do do you do just environmental stories or do you just japanese stories or and, and the answer is yes, because <laughs> I've got these in my backpack. Yeah, right. That's awesome. So we already talked about what, what really floats your boat, and that's hearing a good story. But um, what's the most important part of what you do, do you think? What do you see as the most important part of what you do and what you bring I think it's reminding people that you don't need a screen and you don't need illustrations and you don't need a soundtrack. You just need somebody telling you a story. Right. When I, I do school programs, uh, my brother Ken um, made up a song about painting stories. And I tell them, uh, I'm a visiting artist, but I didn't bring pictures because you brought your eyes and your ears and your heart. And you will paint your own pictures. And so as I tell the story, use your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart and make the pictures that you want to see with the story. And then if you want to tell 
someone the story later, just rerun the pictures and tell people what you see and you'll be able to tell the story. That's, that's, that's so cool. <laughs> I like that. Can I borrow that? The way that he does that, he says that it play, imagine a movie playing in your head as I'm telling the story. Yeah. Right. And I kind of like that, but it, it's, you know, I, I like to stay away from the, the, the movies and TVs and, you know, anything yeah. like that, because we just, yeah. it's just like all everywhere. You know, you, it used to be that you could walk into a restaurant and there wouldn't be a TV and 50% of restaurants have TVs these days. Right. And most bars have them. Yeah. And it's just like, just take them down. <laughs> like you want to eat and talk to people. All I can imagine is that they think that the recorded babble is is providing a sound screen so that people feel more private. Oh, I don't, I don't know, but it certainly makes it hard to have the conversation with all of yeah. that that noise in the background. The thing that the thing that bugs me about recorded stories, whether they're um, video or or even books picture books is that they're the same every time right and it gives kids the impression that there's only one correct way to tell the story right. and so when i'm teaching storytelling uh, i often tell a simple tale that can be retold with two people and then i get a volunteer to retell it with me one person is the recurring character and the others does all the other does all the different characters who speak with them right. and i make a point of not saying it exactly the way i did before because then pairs of students and this includes adults because i do this exercise with uh, teachers librarians whatever um pairs of people take turns telling the story first one is the continuing character the other is the different one and they are then freed to ad lib and do it in their own words as long as they get to the same ending and i ask them although you can it's a story that can be varied a great deal but i ask them to you know just being fair to your partner at least yeah at least stick with where you think you're going i like that yeah it's, it's so important to give people the freedom to use their own words and not to feel right there's a copyright notice on every version of gingerbread man or something right right i mean yeah exactly and these stories when you know before before they were all put down on in paper um or clay in some cases i guess <laughs> right talk about gilgamesh um you know a lot of these stories they changed when people told them anyway right it's sure. they weren't written down they you don't have to remember them verbatim because the whole idea and, and the reason why we have so many different variants of the same story is because as we've traveled around and the world has changed around us we've we've made the stories appropriate for what we're going through at the time right and people use can use the same story to make a different point right you know, the one about about the turtle who flew by being carried on a stick between two birds mm -hmm. well there are different different versions of the ending Sometimes the, the turtle can't keep his mouth shut because he wants to say, are we there yet? So it's impulse control problem right. or impatience. And, and uh, other versions, he realizes he hasn't said goodbye to his friends that he's leaving behind. And so he opens his mouth to say bye-bye. And others, the animals down below see the birds carrying something and they, they get very wrong ideas about what it is and turtle is so angry. no i'm turtle <laughs> but you know it depends on where you're going right right that's, that's interesting all right i got a couple of questions for you hmm. what's your favorite breakfast to eat goodness favorite breakfast to eat oh a fresh orange and some yogurt. Okay. And who would you have that breakfast with and where? If you could choose anyone and anywhere. Anyone? Anyone and anywhere. 
Actually, I'm perfectly happy having breakfast with my husband in my own kitchen. The idea, of, the idea of a desert, of a, a palmy beach or something. Yeah, get sand in your shoes. Um, yeah, and in your orange. <laughs> yeah, could be. Yeah. Fran, you've you've shared your time so generously with me, and I so appreciate it. Thanks for for doing conversations with storytellers with me today. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking with you, and uh, well, I hope you edit out all the bobbles. I don't think there were many. <laughs> <laughs> well, have fun in Texas. That sounds like a really good time. So uh, really? in, in, enjoy that, and hopefully we'll see each other soon. I hope so. Maybe it's sharing the fire next time. Yes. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Full disclosure, I mispronounced Emily or Emmeline Pankhurst's name. It's not Parkhurst. Emily Pankhurst never met Susan B. Anthony, the former coming to the United States a few years after Susan B. Anthony's death. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Fran Stallings. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, be sure to check out other episodes. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree, yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout out to Chris Jett for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music that he created for my podcast. His band is called Blackpool Mecca. You can help this podcast, keeping it alive, by supporting my craft and becoming one of my Patreons and paying anything from a dollar for an episode you might have enjoyed to a regular monthly subscription. In return, you get extras, early releases, and exclusive content on my work. www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. If you can't join my wonderful tribe of patrons, then help me out by doing something you can do. I would be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, wherever you found this episode. It won't take long and it helps. Not just me, but others find and enjoy this podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know there are a lot of other places you could be, so I appreciate it. Until next time, be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. It's just a story. <laughs> <laughs>